anyone get faith? Where does faith come from? What is faith? Scripture tells us that faith itself is a gift of God. If salvation is about us, it is not a gift. It is a result of work. If God sovereign and sovereignly called me, then He has sealed me. Welcome to the teaching ministry of Heritage Baptist Church in Ashland, Ohio. Each week, we bring you expository and practical teaching straight from God's Word. And now, here's Pastor Ben. Let's go ahead and open our scriptures today. We're going to be looking at one verse as we continue and get back into the study in Ephesians, our main book of study. Today we're going to be looking at verse 4, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 13, talking about the title of the complexity of Christ. And somewhat because of the nature of this message. I'm going to spend a little bit of time at the top of the message recapping our last two sermons in Ephesians because it's been a few weeks with us being in Ecclesiastes at the start of the new year last year and then Jared's sermon from James the week before. So we're back in Ecclesiastes today for the first time in three weeks. So let me read our verse. We'll ask the Lord to bless our understanding and then we'll dive in. I'm actually going to back up the reading to verse 11 because that's where the wholeness of the context is going to come from. So Paul tells us in verse 11, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Let us pray. Dear Lord, this certainly is a verbose passage from Paul where he's using a lot of big words and we want to analyze those things correctly through the lens of the translations that we've been given and also studying the original Greek. But we know, Lord, that for this message to take root and to be effectual, It needs to be because your spirit grants us the wisdom and discernment to understand what Paul is saying and to know how we might apply it. Lord, as we talked about the concept of prophecy today in Sunday school, to be given a word that is reflective for the time and purpose and place That is our prayer request today, that you would allow me to simply be your instrument and remove from me any agenda that is contrary to that which you would have spoken and allow us to drink deeply of this message that we might apply it and know you more fully to make you known. In Christ's name, amen. So as I mentioned a moment ago, because it's been a few weeks, I want to back up to verse 11 and 12 and offer a review heading into our study in verse 13. So if we back up to verse 11, we discover that part of the reason that Jesus died was to establish certain roles like apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. And In verse 12, we learn that the reason that these roles were established was so that the rest of us could be equipped. Now, this brings up a pretty interesting point, and I really like the way that J.I. Packer says it in one of his commentaries. Packer reminds us it's not primarily those mentioned in verse 11 who do the work of the ministry. It is rather the people they equip. Effective teachers help each believer to find their own way of benefiting the rest of the church. 
Most of you know who Nate Harrison is. He's one of our missionaries that we directly support, and he's one of Jamie's favorite speakers. Uh, Nate it was a collegiate wrestler at AU. He's one of the few people that I love to have as a guest speaker because he's one of the few people that fills this pulpit that's shorter than I am, uh, and he's about as wide as he is tall, and he's just, even in his 40s, he's got this incredibly muscular, he's built like a fire hydrant, and he brings the word with incredible power. And uh, he once shared it to me this way, the same concept that Packer is sharing when Nate was discipling me when I was a college student and he was a graduate student. Nate said to me, Ben, do you know when you really have had success in discipling someone? And I thought about it and I knew, I didn't say anything because I knew it was a trap. It was a trick question because what I wanted to say was, well, I guess when my disciple is bearing fruit and showing maturity. And before I could answer, Nate said, you probably think it has to do with your disciple. And I was like, no, no, not at all. Um, and he said, it actually, you know you've done well discipling and that the Lord has blessed your endeavors when you see the quality of your disciple's disciple when you see your grand disciple, because you know you've taught well if you've taught someone and equipped them to teach. So a somewhat apt parallel this morning with the news from Brad and Marianne that they are grandparents is they will know whether the teachings that they have distilled into their son Jake take root if Jake's children grow up to honor God. And we see that in a more short-term version, certainly with the people that we disciple directly in our lives. But I think it's an appropriate thing. Packer reminds us that these offices that we see, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, they're not the ones doing the majority of the work. They're the ones doing the equipping so that us, the church, does the majority of the work. So as I was pondering this concept, it brought me to an interlude that I wanna take a few minutes to share with you about my view of this church. Now we are of course in the calendar year 2021 and this September, actually on September 2nd, which will be my 45th birthday, it will also be the 20 year anniversary of the night that I was voted in as the senior pastor here at Heritage, by the way, by one vote. If one vote had gone the other way, I would absolutely be selling insurance in Des Moines, but I am here. Um, we are not a large church. Just take a minute, let that sink in. I know that's shocking news to many of you, but we are not a large church. Today we are almost 40 people because Mark refuses to round up. I don't know why. 49 is a much more biblical number, but he refuses to round up. Um, but I do believe that because of our size, this is actually an area where our smaller size serves as an advantage for the concept that Paul is laying out here in Ephesians 4.13. Let me give you an example from about 10 years ago to hopefully help this resonate. About 10 years ago, I met a particularly bright young female Ashland University student who I had befriended on campus while doing some ministry work up there. And she was deciding between our church, which she had visited a few times, and another large, very healthy church on the other side of town. And essentially she asked me, why should I come to Heritage instead of the other church? 
Well, as you might imagine, this put me in a bit of an awkward position because generally speaking, I don't like to feel the need to sell the advantages or disadvantages of one church over another unless there is a theological issue that I think is worth noting. And in this particular instance, there wasn't. This was a very solid church. It was a church that I could have attended as a member and been fine with. I would rather march rather partner with this young lady in prayer that the spirit would make it clear where they might end up. Now, this young woman was particularly bright and she sensed my hesitancy to answer the first question. And so she rephrased the question and instead she said, okay, Pastor Ben, how might my experience be different at Heritage than at a larger church? Now, this was a little bit easier for me to answer. I was a little bit more comfortable answering this question. And I said to her, well, at a larger church, as you have opportunity to serve, it will most often occur along the lines of serving in a pre-established ministry. Essentially, they might say to you, here are your 20 options, pick one. Whereas in a church our size, there is a much higher probability that you would own and be responsible for that particular ministry. I believe one of the advantages of that is that you are much less likely to be a cog and a replaceable cog at that part in a large machine, but rather that your individual skills and talents and desires and callings can be maximized for the benefit of the body at large. Now, many of you over the years who have gone through membership or pre-membership meetings with me, remember me saying to you that I wanted you to start praying specifically about something that your unique gifts, talents, and experiences bring to the table and that that ministry very well may not exist presently at Heritage. You become more involved as a member, but you really become part of the church when the church is different in your absence. And in large churches, we often have the ability to sneak in the back and sneak out and never really be known or know anyone. And a lot of people want that. They seek that. They like that. And that's very hard to accomplish here, partly because of our size and partly because of the directness and warmth of our people. And I'll give you a recent example of this. I gave this exact speech to Katie and Brad before they became members about 18 months ago. And sure enough, about three or four months after they became members, Katie came to and said, do you know anything about American Heritage Girls? And outside of just hearing of the organization and passing, I knew nothing about them. And so she gave me some literature, asked if our church might be willing to support and host a troop. And today we have this ministry with how many troops? 24? 23 girls. Um, two of them are from our, con- no, I'm sorry, two plus the Hans are from our, so about five are from our congregation. The rest are from other churches in the area. And it's been a wonderfully successful mission. And I, I, I say that to the praise and thanks of Katie taking my word seriously in that. One of the great advantages that you have when we look at these concepts in a church this size is your ability to own and cultivate your own gifts by putting together a ministry. And I will absolutely 100% percent support that. So with that pause being addressed, now this kind of brings us full circle and it gives us the opportunity to look at the end game when we see verse 13 in light of what verses 11 and 12 say. So let's look at verse 13 again. This is our main text today. These things happen, Paul says, until we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the body of the Son of God to a perfect man, 
to the measure of the nature of the fullness of Christ. Now, I'm fishing a little bit here, but would anyone venture to guess using a single word answer what concept is being alluded to here in terms of the growth of the individual believer? Does anyone know what word I'm fishing for here? Yeah, good, Jody. So sanctification. And sanctification is essentially a big fancy word that means how we become more Christ-like the longer that we are involved in the disciplines of the faith. So if I became a believer when I was 19 years old, I think it's appropriate that on the day that I die at 114 years old, because I'm feeling pretty optimistic today, that on that day I should be more Christ-like in my final year of living than I was in my 30th year as a Christian or my 10th year as a Christian or my first year as a Christian. We grow more Christ-like the longer that we are exposed to the church, the longer that we are exposed to the word, the longer that we are exposed to the Holy Spirit, and the longer that we are exposed to this saving knowledge in Jesus Christ. So we all have a pretty strong idea about one, but maybe not two of these concepts here. How does this happen? We all come to the unity, which is something that has been preached at uh, very strongly in Ephesians by Paul. And we do this by two methods. Faith is one and knowledge of the body of the Son of God. And then the end game is to become like Christ, a perfect man who is the measure of the nature of the fullness of Christ. So we all have a pretty strong idea about what role faith is and what role it plays. But I would like to close on the final few minutes here talking about this other word, knowledge, because it's a much more layered word than we think it is in the English language. Now, before I do that, I want to acknowledge something. This, this first translation here, that is the New King James that I'm reading from. Um, but I want to dig in a little bit more deeply and show you this also from the NASB in just a second. So the final goal, this is what the verse is saying. I'm going to show it to you in the NASB in just a second. The final goal is that through this equipping, we would all come to unity together, which is the recurring theme of Ephesians. And this unity, Paul tells us, is based on two things, faith, and the Greek word for faith is pistis, and uh, that Jesus Christ is real and the knowledge, the epigenosis of that body of Christ is absolutely essential for our growth, our accountability, our sustaining in difficult times, and ultimately to the glory of God. So we see that. Now let me show it to you in the NASB because the NASB's rendering is, is, quite, is quite good. And again, the NASB is more of a word-for-word -word translation, whereas the New King James is more of a thought-for-thought. The NASB renders it until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. In other words, Christ is the goal, the preeminent goal of the perfection of what man ought to become, and that is our eventual goal. That is the direction that we are heading. Now, in order to really wrap our minds around this, I want to break down this word epigenosis knowledge because the Greek word has three components to it 
And in most cases, when we translate it into knowledge, we might mean one, and maybe in a really good scenario, we might mean two of these characteristics, but rarely do we put all three of these characteristics together. So here is the first one, recognition. Recognition that we know who Jesus truly is. So let me pause pastorally here and ask you a question. What are ways in which we fail in our knowledge by recognizing Christ incorrectly? Rhonda? Making him out to be, maybe say, our personal Jesus. Okay, so maybe we overemphasize certain aspects of Jesus' character. Now, everyone in this room, say amen if you agree that Jesus is absolutely personal. All right, that was fantastic. You guys are absolutely asleep. Let me, let me press the question. You guys do understand that that is a really unique tenet of the Christian faith. That, we, that, 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 that the same Jesus that runs, controls, sustains, dictates the universe personally knows and calls us to a saving faith. That's a huge component, right? So Rhonda says one way we get this wrong is maybe overemphasizing certain aspects of Jesus's character at the expense of others. And she brought up the idea of overemphasizing or emphasizing the fact that he's personal at the expense of other things. What are some other aspects that we may inadvertently overemphasize Christ with? Brandon? <clears throat> Uh, we may, there may be a lack of reverence for Jesus, like Jesus is my friend, you know. And yeah. To the point where it can cause some complacency and habitual sin that we have in our life. Yeah. It is true that Jesus is our friend, but the most natural way for us to think about that is like the friend that we play Xbox with. Yeah. And then it does lead to a lack of reverence. Absolutely. What, what are other aspects of that where we make that error, Brad? I think there's a, there's a tension between calling Jesus or God our, our Father, it, it always kind of annoys me when I hear somebody pray in public and they call him Dad. It's, it's kind of irreverent. But, but there is a reverence of thinking that our, our Dad is the creator of all things, the sustainer of all life. Yeah, yeah no, I, I agree with you. I, I, and it's a nomenclature thing. It's a verbiage thing. But I once heard a pastor close a prayer after he was teaching on a similar subject, and he opened the prayer by saying, Daddy. And I and it just it, it like it, just, it was just a personal thing. Like I don't think he meant any disrespect by it. I just felt like where is that tension between the reverence for God that Brandon speaks about and the personal nature? Marianne, you had your hand up a second ago. Did you? I, I yeah. Did. Um, when a lot of times when people say Jesus is love, and he is. However, he's also just. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so when they take it that he's yeah. just love, he loves everybody. He, yeah. you know, he doesn't care about. Yep. Yeah. You hit the one that always strikes me. Well, God is love. Jesus is love. Therefore, I fill in the blank with 100 things, but usually it's in the context of therefore he would not choose some and not others. Well, this is the equivalent of somebody coming to you and saying, hey, I've heard really, really good things about heritage. What can you tell me about Pastor Ben? And Andy says, he's white. And that's all he says. Now, it's true. I know this is shocking news. I am Caucasian. But none of us would be comfortable with that being the fullness of our descriptor. And I think it's incredibly limiting and insulting when we simply say Jesus is love, therefore. 
and we fill in the blank with the rest of those things. So the first key component of epigenosis is recognition, that we know who Jesus truly is, and I would argue that part of knowing who Jesus is is fully knowing counselor, friend, redeemer, savior, um, substitution for our atonement, uh, knowledge to call us before we were ever created, all of these encapsulating things, ruler and sustainer of the universe, alpha and omega, beginning and end, all of these things are characteristics of God that allow us to recognize who he truly is. The second component of epigenosis is discernment. And discernment takes our recognition of knowing who Jesus truly is and allows us to understand the implications of that truth. So, to push back for a moment to Marianne's statement, if we know that Jesus is love, but we do not know that he is just, or we do not acknowledge that he is also just, that would radically change the implications of how we interact with Jesus. To push back to Brandon and Brad's point, if we know that Jesus is our friend, but our knowledge is limited to that being of our friend, we're not terribly upset if we happen to disappoint our friend versus disappointing our father right? Our friend will get over it. Our father will punish us. Our father will correct us. So if we do not have a full recognition, we lack in the discernment area to understand the end game or the implications of that truth. What are other areas, what might be other areas where the discernment is the bottleneck? The discernment is what we cannot grasp and our faith is hindered because of that. Any thoughts or ideas on where the discernment piece goes awry. Katie. In, in all my years of nursing, I've seen this thing that, you know, Jesus is a healer. Mm. And if he doesn't heal the way we want him to heal, then I have no use for him. That, right. You know, that's kind of like the, the whole thing, and you see this bitterness. And, um, you know, who are we to say how he chooses to heal? That that might be that he takes that person home with him. Yeah, yeah. And um, when when Jack and Camden were nine, um, Camden's brother Paxton passed away from leukemia, and everybody was praying for you know Paxton to be healed. And Paxton at seven was telling everybody, "I'm already healed. Mm. You know, I know where I'm going. I'm going home to God." Yeah. And, um, you know, here's this little seven-year-old telling everybody, you don't have to pray for me to heal. I, I am you. Yeah. You know, I mean, and it just, that struck me that he's seven years old and he got that. Similarly, in hospice work, you know, I've shared this this before, but when I pray with somebody and ask them, how would you like me, what can I pray for? And their response is that I get better, that I get that I get better. And, and that's tough because they're in hospice, they, they have a terminal illness. My response to that is always, I am happy. I am happy and full of joy to pray that the Lord would heal you. But let me ask you a question before we pray. How would you feel if the Lord doesn't want you to get better, but is using this to call you home? He's using cancer as the conduit to which he draws you home. 
And the way that somebody answers that question tells me a lot about their faith and their maturity because for a lot of people, sadly, faith is a one-way street, as you just alluded to, and it means give me what I want the way I want it. That's my faith. And if you don't, then I have no use for you. I have no need for you. Obviously, the mature Christian says what Jesus said in the garden, Lord, I don't want to do this, but it's not my will. Let your will be done. Excellent. So the last part that leads to the conclusion of this epigenosis study is acknowledgement. That because we recognize who he is and because we recognize the implications of that truth, it leads to serving him both as Lord and as Savior. Now, Lord and Savior are kind of two big columns under which a lot of our relationship with Jesus exists. And some people err and they serve him as their Savior, but not their Lord and their discipline is lacking. And I do believe that you can even serve him as Lord, but not Savior, because the way that you serve him as Lord leads to a works-based idea of salvation. So really, you don't need him to save you because you know how to save yourself through these works. So both of those are dangerous. And I believe the complexity and the fullness of having this faith and knowledge of who the Son of God is, Jesus, allows us to project this is my goal and end game as I strive to become the mature Christian. So my conclusion that I want to draw to today is this. With this layered and comprehensive epigenosis, knowledge, we come to at the end of verse 13 that we see Christ as the perfect man who knew no sin, yet was tempted in all ways as we were, who perfectly fulfilled the mission given by the Father. Here's the $20,000 application today. This understanding should lead us to fully appreciate how reverently and humbly we ought to view Christ because he is so much more layered than we often reduce him to being. We often focus in on a few characteristics of Jesus that are true to the expense and detriment of the fullness of who and what Christ is. And by doing that, we also focus on those same characteristics within ourselves to the detriment of the well-roundedness of our growth as a believer. So my hope is that when we really study the words that Paul is choosing by the Holy Spirit in, in uh, Ephesians 4.13, that what it draws us to is just how complex and layered Christ is, so worthy of being studied and renewed week after week, because just when we think we kind of have the whole thing figured out, we see a different layer that we did not realize existed previously. Thanks for listening to this message from Pastor Ben Roby and Heritage Baptist Church. We welcome your feedback or questions. You can find us online at hbcashland.com or connect with us on Facebook. If you found this message helpful, please share it with a friend or loved one. Again, thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next week.